Iconic makeup artist. Beauty industry revolutionary. Entrepreneur. Bobby Brown is all these things and so much more. Throughout her career, she has crossed paths with some of the most accomplished people at the top of their field. These conversations are a look into their inspiring lives because everyone has a story. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown. In 1993, Lisa Price started her hair and body products company in her kitchen in Brooklyn, New York, and decided to name it after her mother. By 1999, the first Carol's Daughters Boutique opened up in Brooklyn. She now has launched Carol's Daughter in more than 30,000 retail stores across the country. Her 2004 book is titled, Success Never Smelled So Sweet, How I Followed My Nose and Found My Passion. The first time I met Lisa was on a panel with a bunch of other cool women, and immediately Lisa and I bonded. We both had been in the business a while, different businesses, but still the beauty business. We both were the mother of three children, happily married, and we both sold to very large companies. We were employees. We call each other on different matters, and mostly if she lived in the same town, I think we'd be Tuesday lunch dates. Here's my conversation with Lisa Price. Well, how did you learn to do what you're doing? How did I learn to... To be an entrepreneur, to... to de- definitely on the job training, because I, I always refer to myself as the accidental entrepreneur because it started out as a hobby, and it was this thing that I did to relax and to have fun, and then it turned into something that I was selling to people, but it was a side hustle. It wasn't my main job, and then over time, it became my main job, and then it got to be a bigger job, and then it was paying for other people to work there, and it became their income. Um, and, you know, it got real and and different and everything about it was new and everything about it was undiscovered. So do you think things in your childhood, you know, that you either saw or, you know, or really, was, you know, was around, do you think that helped at all being an entrepreneur? Did you have anyone in your family? I didn't have anyone in my family that was an entrepreneur, but I did have people in my family that would set out to do things that perhaps they weren't supposed to do, mm-hmm. but then they figured out how to do it. Right. Okay. That's a that's a very important major skill that you can't teach. Exactly. You can't teach. So you grew up where? In Brooklyn. In, in New Brooklyn. York. Mm-hmm. So every so you are Brooklyn. Everything is Brooklyn. To everything you. is Brooklyn. Yes. Yeah. And now Brooklyn's really cool and hip. So yes. Yeah. Would you? <laughs> well, probably, it, it always was. Yeah. But now, now people that don't live in Brooklyn <laughs> yes. wish they did. Yeah. So, yeah. And what kind of kid were you? Um, quiet, um, artsy, creative. My grandmother taught me how to crochet when I was about ten, and I loved it. And I loved baking with my grandmother. Um, homebody. I loved movies. Um, I love TV, and I still love those things today. My TV is always on. I'm I'm not one of these no TV people. Did you go to college? I went to college, but not um, for the full four years that I should have. I graduated high school very young, so I graduated one month after my 16th birthday. Wow. And because I was so young, uh, my dad had kind of decided what my education was going to be. And I wanted to go to the University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida, with my friend Dawn, Uh um, who's an actress today, Dawn Lewis. And I wanted to 
a major in music and minor in drama. And dad was like, no, you're too young. You're not going away. And I ended up going to City College. And they had launched a program where you could get your bachelor's and juris doctorate in six years. But since I was already 16 and starting out kind of young, it was just too young. And it was too much too young. And I flunked out. And for the longest time, I could not discuss that. I would never mm. be in an interview with someone like you and like, yes, I'd be like, I flunked out. And I was so embarrassed and ashamed. But now I understand well, there's that other ways, I just bit off more than I could chew. There's other ways. I was going to say there's other ways of saying it besides being flunked out. Yeah. And so then what happened when you... You know, that must have been a major, major life-changing thing. It really was. And it it was the first time that I had failed at something, especially academic, because I was perfect. Always straight A's, dean's list, all of that. Um, So coming to grips with the fact that I had failed was really, really hard. It was probably just too much too soon. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, And too much to understand, to be 16 and you're trying to juggle college courses and you know torts is right. like eh? crazy yeah yeah and 16. then i didn't i didn't want to be a lawyer yeah it just sounded good uh-huh you know oh. it sounded like a good thing like right. you're 22 years old and you have your law degree woo you know but i really didn't want to go to court you know <laughs> yeah uh. So then what did you do? I worked. Okay. I I worked for American Express for a bit um, as like a file clerk and data entry person back when we had paper and people called customer service when they had issues and they wrote letters. And they hired people without college degrees. They did. Yeah. Because yeah. that's all, not always easy getting that job. Right, right. And again, lar- larger companies that did do that. And then if you grew within the company, you know, maybe they'd send you to school or send you to take courses. Um, but I didn't stay there too, too long. Um, and I ended up being an assistant teacher for a little while, which was kind of odd at like a daycare center, but it, it was in my neighborhood and it paid well and it worked out. And then I transitioned from that to babysitting of all things. Um, but again, it was in my neighborhood and convenient and worked out. Then I ended up at the UN um, and I worked at the UN during general assembly where they hire people temporarily um, but then you might get offered a position later. So from babysitting to the UN, was there an ad in a paper? Did you know? Like, how did you just say, oh, I'm just going to show up it, at the UN and ask for a job? My dad was married to someone at the time who worked at the UN. Okay. And she knew when they did their recruiting for gotcha. General Assembly. And she got me in. Okay. And I passed their tests. So... Yeah, and I how, got to work there for a while. And then did you stay on? I was there um, for two general assemblies. Then I was offered a position, and I was there for about four years. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. And then is that when you got the idea of? No. After the UN, I worked for the city of New York. What were you now, like 19? No, no, no. Okay. I, I was older. Yeah. I, I worked for the city of New York for a while as an executive assistant, and I had a boss who was a bit temperamental. And this one particular day, he, you know, went off about something um, relatively minor. And um, I said, you know what, I'm getting that resume ready. And I had my my resume was literally coming out of the printer at my desk. And a, a girlfriend of mine called me and said, send me your resume. They're interviewing for writer's assistants on The Cosby Show, because she was working with the producers on The Cosby Show. So I 
took it out the printer and walked it over to the fax machine and sent it to her. And I ended up being a writer's assistant for the last two seasons of the show. Oh, I did not know that. That is so cool. Yeah. How do you be a writer's assistant? Writer's assistants at that time, I have no idea what they're like today. We basically took notes in the rooms with the writers where they would come up with the scripts and they kind of like talk out their ideas, act out their ideas. You take the notes and write it down. You leave the room. Someone else comes in and fills in for you and you type it up. And it had to be typed up in script format so that everyone else knows the lighting cues, the what we need for fashion, the days are changing, et cetera. So it was something that I learned um, as I did it. I found out later that I almost didn't get the job because one of the supervisors hated hiring people outside of the industry. And the other supervisor was tired of getting people who wanted to be directors and writers. And she was like, she is a secretary. She types and she takes notes. That's who I want. And it was awesome because it, it, I finally thought, this is my career. This is what I'm going to do. Did you want to be a writer? I didn't. You I didn't. liked being a part of production. So I eventually did script supervising and I did production coordinating. And I thought that's what I would do as a career. But because I was relaxed at work and I liked work and I was passionate about work, when I had time off, I wasn't so stressed out and like... You know how you, you get stressed out and you just feel like, okay, I don't want to do anything. I just, yeah. I'm going to watch TV. I'm just going to veg. When I was home, I felt like energized. So I was being crafty and doing stuff. And that's when I started to blend fragrances and start to make moisturizers when I had my downtime for my TV jobs. So what, but what made you do that? Was it, did you see, there was no YouTube back then, right? You didn't right. see like a YouTube or a blog mm -hmm. or what made you say, let me go buy this and this and mush it together? First started from fragrance. So I've loved fragrance since I was little. Um, like five years old, I remember Chanel Number no. 5 and my mm -hmm. grandmother wearing it. And I read that in the, in the 80s, because I was a huge Prince fan, still am, that he would blend different fragrances on his body to create unique fragrances. And a friend of mine told me about a place where I could buy oils wholesale because he knew that um, on Saturday nights, if I was hanging out with my friends, I would stop at the tables. There would be Muslim guys there selling oils on Friday and Saturday nights in the village. And I would mix at the table. But then if I couldn't find the same guy, I couldn't mix the same thing again. So this friend told me about this store um, that was on uh, East 106th Street, and that I could go there and buy things wholesale. And I went and I purchased stuff and I brought it home. And that was the beginning of me making my own perfumes from this supply that I had. And because I loved fragrance, I knew layering fragrance was a good thing. You don't just wear the perfume. You wash with it, you moisturize with it, and then you just apply it once and it lasts throughout the day. And I needed moisturizers in these things that I was making. So I started putting the oils into unscented lotions that I would get at the drugstore, but it was messy. They would separate. So something just said, well, why don't you just make your own lotion? Like I just had this idea. I'm like, but how do you make lotion? And I found a book on essential oils that had basic 
recipes in it for creams and lotions and different emulsions. So what kind, like, give me a basic recipe. I mean, it's like... I don't remember the exact measurements, yeah. but ingredients yeah. would be um, lanolin, olive oil, vitamin E, things like that, cocoa butter. Um, very hard to find back then because yeah. we didn't have Amazon. So... I would, did you, you blend know, them? Did you put them in a blender? You would melt them on the stove okay. and then you would add different things when it was cooling. And there wasn't much process information mm, right. in these recipes. So as I began to work with them and then also modify them, because I didn't want to use lanolin because it was sheep fat and it kind of smelled animalic. So I wanted something cleaner. Wait, what's and I that word? It smelled what? Animalic. Like what? animal. Like animal. Yeah. Okay. Just fatty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I started to use different waxes and things, um, but I wrote everything down. I don't know why. Yeah. Like, like something just said, so write it cool. down. Do you have it so in you a book? Keep tra- yeah, huh? and I still have the book. Oh, that's so cool! You'll yeah. have to. You'll one day you're gonna have to publish it or put it in something. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah, and it, it was it was really just relaxing and fun, and I made a lot of mess. There, you know, there were things that just didn't come out right. Or and how many pots did you ruin? How many pots? I actually didn't. I really? did. I didn't until much, much later, um, when I was working. I I did burn one of my pots, but it was a long time later. I just got distracted in the basement. And thank God I didn't start a fire. Well, how did you get all the goo out of the pots? Dawn dishwashing Dawn, liquid. Yeah? Yes, That's it? it really works. Huh? Their commercials are spot on. It does the job. And I never had issues like in my house that I live in now in the drain. I would put the Dawn down the drain and turn the hot water on. And- I'm all about organic cleaning stuff in my house. And I think I got to buy some Dawn because my <laughs> kids come and they cook. And it's like it's weeks. I can't get those pots clean. I'm going to buy some Dawn. Thanks yeah. for that tip. It, it definitely works. Right. And you can dilute it too. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so did you start giving them away? I did. I gave to friends and family. Once I got something stable that I knew if I gave it to them, it wouldn't like fall apart on their bureau. Um, And people gave me good feedback. And honestly, it, it was my mother because I never thought about selling it until she said, you know, St. Mary's is having a flea market in a couple of weeks. Why don't you sell the butters? And I was like, really, mom? You th- think people would buy them? She <laughs> said, yeah, they're good. You, sh- you should give Aww. it a try. And, and her name is Carol, I'm yes, guessing. Yes, yes. Mom's name was Carol. Um, and I took her advice and I rented a table and I made a batch of butter and I took it out there and I sold every jar that Do you remember day. how much the table was that you had to rent? $25. $25. And <laughs> how many um, pieces of balm did you have? I had about 24 to 30 mm-hmm. jars. Okay. Yeah. And I, I only came home with my testers. That uh-huh. was it. Okay. So yeah. that was... It was successful. Yeah. And yeah. someone handed me a flyer for another craft fair that was coming up in the neighborhood two weeks later. And I ended up spending the summer doing that, the summer of 93. I just sold at different little places in, in Brooklyn. Today, when people write about it, they always refer to it as I sold at the Brooklyn Flea. Right. There, there was no Brooklyn Flea. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was just selling in the street. But there are so <laughs> many girls and maybe... Be- now sitting at these different art shows and literally doing what you're doing, hoping mm-hmm. that people will, you know, A, they probably just want to pay their rent. Right, right. So it's, I don't know if it was that common then. I don't know. Within this particular uh, 
circuit, yet there were regular people that did it. There was the, you know, the lady who had the scarves and the guy who makes the bangles. And, you know, there's another woman who made incredible lemonade. And you started to see the regulars at the different events. And I always learned about other events from other people. Like they would say, oh, are you going to be at such and such in Jersey next weekend? No, I don't know about it. Oh, here's the number. See if they still have tables left. And so when did you decide you had to quit your job to do this? In 1996, I was pregnant with my first child, with Forrest. And Forrest was due in April. And I he ended up being born in March, but he was due in April. And I ended up uh, quitting my last television job in February of 1996 because I kind of did the math and I realized that if I kept working, I would basically just hand the paycheck to the babysitter and I'd have no time with my child. But if I gave up work, maybe I could make this work. Maybe I could make enough money that I could contribute to the house and still be able to see my child. So were you still working at Cosby or had you moved on? No, I had moved on. Cosby was was over. I was working at Lifetime Television, uh, working on a, a home show. Mm-hmm. It was called Our Home. I remember that show. <laughs> I think I was on it. Yep, I remember it. <laughs> and so your home, new baby, you're still doing these fairs. Mm-hmm. And then, like, what happened? Like, what's... What was the big thing that made a big difference? Because I remember when I first heard your name Mm -hmm. and then I heard more and then I heard the celebrities, then I heard all the stuff. And so take me through like what really happened in the beginning. Well, one one of the first big shifts for me actually happened while I was pregnant with Forrest. um, And that was Essence Magazine had featured me for maybe the third time or second time. Um, But very small. It was one sentence. It was an article about locks. And in that article, it said something like, for optimal moisture, try Carol's daughter lock butter. And then there was a toll-free number. And And so you already were marketing to the magazines? Like, how did they know about this? One of their editors shopped in my apartment. Uh She was friends with a good friend of mine. And she came and shopped in my apartment. And they had featured me in a holiday gift guide prior to that. And And that that must have been huge for you at the time. It it was a really big deal to be in it. But I'm glad I didn't listen to everyone's advice because everyone's advice was, you need to have hundreds of those baskets ready to go. And I was like, no. If I get the orders, I'll I'll figure uh-huh. it out, you know, because yeah. <laughs> I just couldn't see spending that money without actually having the orders. I was like, people could wait a couple of days for an order because back then we didn't have to ship quickly the way we do now. Um, and I, I'm glad I did that because I didn't get one order from being on that page. Wow. I had some people come and shop with me and call me and do different things, but they didn't order that particular basket. And then the very next month was that one line in that article. And I shipped so much lock butter to so many people and then started to get wholesale orders. And then people wanted to know other things that I had, you know, so I would send them the catalog because that's when we uh, had paper, right? had paper catalogs. And was anyone helping you? And were you still making it out of your kitchen? I was still making it out of my kitchen. And I had a, a friend of my aunt's who would help me sometimes. And my husband would help me. I didn't have formal employees until 
like 98 ish, 98, 99 was when I got formal employees. And, and then your formal employees, did they come to your kitchen or did you find somewhere else to make it? They came to my kitchen. Okay. And we were in the kitchen until 2002. Um, around the time that I did uh, the Oprah Winfrey show, we were renovating a warehouse. So when they shot the Oprah Winfrey show, I was still working in my kitchen at home. Um, but couple of months after that, we moved to the warehouse kitchen. Okay. So I'm going to back up for a second. So okay. you're, you're doing all this. You have an employee. It's doing well. How did you get on Oprah? I got on Oprah th basically through word of mouth. I did a party for B. Smith. She had a restaurant. Then she had her television show. I was one of the people on her cable show. Then she was launching a magazine, and she decided to bring some of the crafters from her TV show to a party for the advertisers so they could experience the crafts live at this party. So I was making rose milk bath okay. at the party and pouring it out and giving it to the guests. This producer was an associate producer on The View, and The View was brand new at the time. So she booked me for The View after this party. And then two years later, she's interviewing for a job at the Oprah Winfrey Show, and my name came up in conversation with an episode that they were working on, and they called me. It's amazing, right? Um, it, it's, crazy. it's crazy. It's crazy. Like, at the time, I was just like, wow, yeah. this is so exciting. But then when you go into the beauty business and you see how PR works, yeah. and it's like Fort Knox to talk to a beauty editor, right. you know, yeah. I was like, wow, I was really lucky. Really lucky. And that's because you were open and you just, yeah, you were lucky. You did something good. You were open and one thing leads to another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've been on Oprah a bunch of times, though. No, I was actually only on the show once. One time. But when she was ending her show, I got to do a lot of segments with a lot of different people about that Oprah effect. And then CNBC, before the show ended, they actually did a show called The Oprah Effect. And I got to be a part of that. So being on her show once, it was like the gift that just kept on giving. It's yeah. amazing. I was actually, the, I was on Oprah's show probably about a dozen times. Wow. First time I was ever on her show she was not national. She was just a young woman in Chicago, and I had a perm, and I don't. We got on it, and yeah, it was like no one knew who she was. Wow, no one knew who she was, and I was on her last ever makeover show. Wow, which was kind of cool, but um, but then you did have another Oprah moment. Oh yeah, yeah. So tell us about that because I saw it on your Instagram. <laughs> well, um, there was an event going on at the. Um, National Museum of African American History at the Smithsonian. For? And it was, the, it was <laughs> the, well, there were two things happening. Her exhibit was opening, um, and it was a year ago, June, and it was showing the 25 years of her show and the effect that her show had on television, but in particular on African American culture. And um, at the same time, there was an economic entrepreneurial summit going on for women in business. I didn't know until the day before I was going to this event that she actually requested that I be a part of the panel. I just got the request to be a part of the panel. And, you know, at the same time, Oprah's opening up this exhibit and she's going to be there. And I was like, yep, I'll be there. No problem. And I was actually supposed to be in Hawaii. Um, I went to a conference in Hawaii and part of my payment was I got to be at the conference. 
I left the conference early. Uh, I was in Hawaii course. for 14 hours and uh, then I was gone yeah. because I was going to see Oprah. Uh-huh. And I did the panel. And then after we finished, we went backstage and she was sitting there because she was coming on after us and she was watching what we were doing. And there was a woman in front of me, um, DJ Beverly Bond, who had her moment. She had said earlier, you know, of all the people that I've met, I've never met Oprah Winfrey. I don't know what will happen if I meet her. Mm. And she met her and she did the, oh, my God, you know, and she had her choked up moment. And I'm just standing there watching it like, oh, this is so great because Beverly told me about this. And then Oprah came over to me and she took my hands and she said, thank you for doing what you do and for continuing to do what you do. Mm. Thank you. And I was just like, oh, oh. my God. <laughs> and no one was there with the camera uh, or anything. But, you know, it, it, yeah. was, it was fine. I, we, we had our moment and, you know, and it just made me feel so good. And we hugged. And then later there was a reception. And one of the other guests at the reception said, go, go stand there. You got to get your picture. And I was like, no, I'm okay. We had such a moment earlier. I'm fine. She was like, no, no, just stand there. You got to get your picture. So I stood there. She turned and she said, oh, come, let me see all of this pink. I was wearing a pink dress. Uh. And then we had this great conversation about eyewear. And and the friend who told me to stand there, she had my phone and she just kept taking pictures and she got all kinds of angles and uh. expressions. And when I put it on Instagram, everybody was like, what were you two talking about? Uh. And I was like, glasses. Aw, that's so cool. <laughs> I wear. <laughs> Aww, that's so cool. Well, I know she's proud of you, you yeah. know, and she is such a supportive woman. She of is. Other women. Yeah. She really is. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we skipped a whole bunch. So here you are. We're going back to your first employee in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. And then what was your first store? Or did you open a direct a, a website? Honestly, my first store was in my home. Um, when we moved out of our apartment and we moved into the house that I live in today, it was my aunt's house. And I was able to dedicate space within the house for there to be a real store and not just a bookcase and a table right. where I brought things out for people when they came. So there was a store set up mm. all and, the time. And how many different products? Oh, gosh. At that point. At, at that point, there was probably... 70 or so 70 different products yeah because wow. well, when you you know it's a lot different when you make them by hand right yeah. than having to have minimums with right, a manufacturer course, yeah so i was always creating new and creating whatever someone asked for right. like i learned later that i had to cull it down uh-huh. but at first i was just afraid to miss business so it's like well this person asked for pineapple and that one asked for cherry and you know because there, there was a time when i had 1100 uh-huh. way too much Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And what's the shelf life? At that time, it would range from six months to about a year and a half. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So then when did it first, the first retail out of your house? The first retail was a place in Brooklyn called Earth General. It's not there anymore. It was in Park Slope. Okay. Um, But they they were the first retailers to carry the brand. And it was it was a cool place, like people, things that we take for granted today that we can do in the supermarket, like buy seventh generation in the supermarket. They weren't in supermarkets back then. And you could take your laundry detergent container in and refill it. You know, um, it was it was a cool store. So that was that was my first retail experience. And then how did you get involved with Jada Pinkett Smith? Jada 
was a fan of the brand from about 96, 97. And she was introduced to the products through DJ Jazzy Jeff. I have not met him yet. I have not spoken to him or anyone affiliated with him. I, I want to know how yeah. did he find out. Uh-huh. I have no clue. Really? You never sent him a thank you, like, basket DJ, thank you, thank you. I, I yeah, not I, too late. I that's true, and I <laughs> right? forget. You know, I forget yeah, that I course, like yeah. have people now that can yeah. figure that out. Just random, like yeah. it's been many years, but I never got to thank you, so thank you. Yeah, and he he definitely was the one that introduced her to it, and then she would have her assistants call, like when she found out where it was, um, or if they were in New York, they would come and shop. And Steve Stout was someone that I met in October of 2003 through another friend of mine. And for people mine. that don't know Steve Stout, I met him at Soul Cycle. I didn't know who he was. He was just a nice guy. Yeah. So how do you describe who he is and what he does? Today, I mean, he's like an amazing marketing person. He has a, a brand new company now. But I mean, back then he was a music industry person who had broken into advertising and marketing in a huge way. And at the time that he and I met, he was building his first, I think that's his first company, <laughs> it was first company translation. And he just, Steve is just one of these people that literally sees the future, you know, like he can see where a trend is going to go and what's going to happen and knows how to act quickly. And then other people sort of look at him and think, well, how do you know that? The, he's like, just trust me. I know right. it's going yeah. to happen. 4.30 on that corner <laughs> right there. We got to be there. Two weeks from now, we got to be on that corner. And bam, what he said is going to happen happens at that corner at 4.30. Um, and Steve had come into contact with Carol's Daughter Products through women that he was dating. They would just end up in his bathroom. And one day he just was like, you know, I, I got to know who this person is. Like he looked at it and he thought that it looked kind of handmade and homemade, but then didn't know if that was a marketing gimmick. But he heard, no, it's this woman in Brooklyn and she makes stuff in her kitchen. And he's like, nah, come on, that can't be real. And uh, he found someone who knew me. And through her, we had our first meeting. And when we decided to become business partners, it was his idea to bring Will and Jada, along with Jay-Z, on as, as business partners within the brand. Okay, so you have Jay-Z, Will, and Jada as business partners. Yeah. And Steve Stout. Right. I'm like, okay, were yeah. you pinching yourself or were you just too Always. busy at the time? still do. Yeah. I still do. It's still surreal. Like, I say it, and yeah. it still sounds like, yeah, that's true. That did happen. And then what happened after that moment? Like? What was the expansion? Initially, Jada became our spokes beauty, which is amazing yeah. to have someone like that on the cover of your catalog. And, and she'd never done On that your before. website. Never done right. that before. Um, and that helped us get into retailers that previously it would have been challenging to do so. You know, when they see the star power behind the brand, the fact that they could have pictures of these people in their store, you know, you have investors, you can keep up with all of our restrictions and things like that. So Sephora was the first um, company to take us on. And then after Sephora, Macy's, um, and then later HSN and Dillard's and JCPenney. And then you got a call from L'Oreal. <laughs> yeah. 
And so how many years after, you know, Steve and all those guys, you know, Steve adopting and I, the business? Steve and I met in 03. We were partners legally by 05. Um, Will and Jada and Jay came in. Uh, I'm sorry. We were legal partners by 04, Steve okay. and I. And then Will and Jada and Jay came in in 05. We were in Sephora by 2006. And I didn't sell to L'Oreal until 2014. So okay. in between, okay. so about a day. there were equ- equity partners that came into the business that really helped with going into Sephora and Macy's in a bigger way. We were able to get into Sephora without the equity partners, but it was hard to do more than that because... It's, it just requires a lot of capital. I, I think a little bit easier today because technology lends itself to people having meetings, mm-hmm. you know. And not having to be there. And not, right. And and you're also shipping is different. Kids yeah. And shipping time. is different too now. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it, it was fast and difficult and challenging and scary and all of that. And why do you think you're so successful? Like, because I hate when people ask me that question and I don't have an answer. So maybe you have a better answer. Well, I I think that I'm successful differently than they think, because I think from a business perspective, there are definitely companies bigger than me that have more sales than I do. But I'm successful in that I got to be the leader in an industry that didn't exist and I survived because that's not easy to do. Because um, you're doing something no one else did before, so you could you can fall apart, you can make the wrong turn, and poof, you're gone. Um, so I'm st- I'm still here, um, and I, I the only answer that I have is because I'm supposed to still be here. I'm supposed to tell this story. Um, I don't think it's because of something like special that that I did necessarily. Um, I listened. I paid attention. I took the hard knocks when they came. I changed when I needed to change. I didn't let myself get stuck in my in my own way and in my own ways. Um, and, you know, I learned to adapt when I needed to adapt. And I survived. More than survived. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I know you now more and more. And, yes, you're a brilliant businesswoman. You're an entrepreneur. You're a strong woman. You're a mother. But you're just so kind. Mm. You're just so down to earth and kind and caring. And, you know, I don't know if people out there that know your brand and loves your brands really knows that about you. Mm. But it's certainly what attracts me to you, Thank you know, especially you. being a woman who is so good at the other things. You don't see a lot of kind women in business. Thank you. That You're was welcome. one of the things that yeah. I felt I saw in Oprah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not when I met her or anything, because I wasn't around her enough to really get to see her. But when her show ended and her network began, one of the first shows on her network was a behind the scenes look at the 25th season. So I felt like I got to see an Oprah that we never saw before because we didn't have social media. Right. So we didn't see her in the garden picking zucchini, you know, or making pasta for Stedman. Um And just seeing this other person be so regular, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better term, but then turn into that person that she was that we saw every day at four o'clock, it it gave me a visual. And and what I learned from it was I don't really have to change who I am because people used to tell me, you're too nice, you're too nice. People are going to take advantage. And I said, I don't have to change who I am. I just 
have to be comfortable asking for what I need Mm -hmm. and what I want. And so I'm grateful to hear you say that I'm kind because I feel like I found the balance between being kind but also not taking any shit. Right. Either. Oh, there's you're, you're <laughs> you not know, kidding. Because I used to yeah. take a lot of shit. Right. <laughs> and yeah. now I'm like, uh-uh. Yeah. That's a good thing about I'm experience. not that chick anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and how is it, you know, with your husband? You know, how I mean, is he like beyond proud of you? Are you able to, you know, come home and be the wife? <laughs> he is very proud of me. Um, and the, and there was an interesting uh dynamic that I had to get adjusted to because when you're when you're out and you're being the boss stuff just happens right because you're the boss like Lisa needs this or can we get that and and then you come home and it's like yeah yeah I'm not I'm not the boss here Uh, I'm a partner here (laughs) I can't give edicts (laughs) um yeah but he's always been um very supportive of me and and the brand and that has been great for us in that it's not like uh I want you to do this or I you know I want this attention you know it's it's always been but when he knows that I am neglecting home or neglecting myself or mm-hmm. neglecting him so being he's, unbalanced he's yeah. very good at yeah you need to sit down yeah no you're not going so and so you know you're not leaving because you need to sit down like what there was one trip that i was supposed to go on and in the middle of talking to him i sat down and he said why did you just sit down i said well the room just got a little dizzy and I was, he's like, what are you talking about? I said, it's just it's just spinning a little bit. I'll be okay. I'll be okay. I got to get to the airport. He was like, absolutely not. You are not going anywhere because this room is not spinning. You are. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And yeah. he was like, yeah, no, you're not flying today. Wow. And he was right. And I, I got very sick after that. Really? Yeah. So he was right. Huh. And how do you deal with that? Telling your bosses basically because now you well are at part that of a at big that time at that time I didn't have to tell okay. bosses. You just but said you're not going. Yeah, but it, it was it was tough because it was it was for HSN and I couldn't get on the plane and so I had to Skype in later. And at first I felt very self conscious about it because within a couple of hours, like how you start to feel like no, I think I'm okay. I think I could have gone, but then two hours after that. So so you were basically God, on go. the air, you Skyped in? Yeah. So someone was actually there on set? Yeah. And they kept coming back to you? Right, right. In your bathrobe and bed? No. <laughs> no, they used a picture. Oh, they, oh, they did? Oh, yeah, okay. they used a picture because okay. I was still kind of gnarly looking. Oh, I never thought yeah. of that. Yeah, I was on the key. You don't, you don't do as well, yeah. you know, with right, the Skype thing, yeah. but it was better than nothing because oh I was literally supposed to be on air that evening. Yeah, and so I what's could not the most, get on the plane. What's the most surprising thing about, you know, where you are in life? Like, what did you never imagine and in a positive way? And then what's in, what's the worst part about it? Mm. The I think the worst part for sure is how many people think they know you and know everything about you and feel completely comfortable telling you all about your life and yourself in 140 characters or less, <laughs> and then operate from anonymous places where you can't go back and 
talk to them about it. <laughs> that, so have you, have you, do you have some haters on social? I have had. It's have not had. something that's yeah. an ongoing thing with me, thankfully. Um, but that that's definitely the, the worst when, you know, just assumptions are made. And, and unfortunately, sometimes the perception can become reality. So I've lived through a couple of bad press moments um, that, you know, it just took time for them to I go away. I don't remember any. Oh, you don't have to bring good. them up, but I don't that's, remember any. That's good. But on my social, it says I delete bad comments. And as soon <laughs> as someone says nothing nice, my power is, their power is they could say it. My power is I could delete you. Yeah. And yeah, block you. Yeah. I, you I do that too. But thankfully, it hasn't been yeah. um, bad lately. Mm-hmm. And then surprising thing is... Um, you know, I honestly, and and I'm and I'm not saying this because I'm sitting here with you, but people like you that I would look at when I was building my business as a kindred spirit, mm-hmm. uh, a mentor in my head, a someone you want to not be like. Because I I've learned that everybody's journey is their own journey. I don't want to be like someone. Um, when we have a dialogue that has nothing to do with anything. Like when, when I ran into you in the lobby that morning and I was so like late and everything uh-huh. that day that it was kismet that we were supposed to meet because I shouldn't have been in the lobby at that time. And you asked me about my brother and and you, you held my face and you were like, I just love you so much. Aww. And it was just like, oh my God, that was Aww. so, re-. you know, it's like yeah. things like that. Yeah. Because if you would have asked Lisa 20 years ago, if she would have a moment like that with Bobby Brown, she would have said, oh, my God, no, that'll never happen. So think, things uh-huh. like that. And, I, and I've had moments like that with with like Gail, um, Gail King that just are wow, you know, or when a person who has a small business says to me, I almost gave up and I kept going because of you. That no, just... I, I, I get it on both sides. Oof. I get it on, you know, the upper and the lower of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. And it yeah. is very, it's the best part. Yeah, about it, re- it really is. And, yeah. and and the 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 other best part is the person that I've become through this process. Because I don't know how else I would have gotten here. And I like the more confident me. And guess what? You're not done yet. That's right. You're not done yet. <laughs> Neither am I. So, you know, we got a long way to go. Yeah. So what advice would you have for people out there that want to be entrepreneurs or have started something? Own your story. Just own it. Get used to telling it. Don't give the job to someone else to tell it. And keep telling it over and over again, even though it might sound like, really, really, I got to say this again, because that is your job. That is your number one job. And everything stems from that and from your ownership of it. And it never is old. It never gets tired. And until you're ready to turn over the authorship to another person, you are the author. So own it. And and what else does uh, Lisa want to do in her life that she could talk about? <laughs> I want to mentor other women in a more official capacity. I do so in an unofficial way. I have a number of people that I give advice to that, you know, send me text messages. Can you talk? I have to make a deal uh-huh. and I don't know what I should do. And and I want that to be something that is more official and can benefit more people mm. than I'm able to squeeze right. into my life. Yeah, we, we talked about that because yeah. I have very similar. Yeah. And I have someone I have to introduce you to. She's known as the soap girl. And I met her in the park in Montclair. And she makes these 
amazing soaps and butters and all of this. And she's never really gotten out of the parks. Mm. I've tried, I've tried. And one day I mentioned you and she goes, oh my God, I couldn't even imagine meeting her. And I think you would love her. She wow. is the cutest thing. She now makes soaps for the George Hotel. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So. I've heard of that place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I've always wanted to know, I know it was named after your mom. Mm -hmm. And why did you name it after your mom? And what influence did she have on you that made you believe that you could be an entrepreneur? Well, the naming part, um, at the time, I had this boss, and when he was going to name a project, he would make a list of the goals of the project and then the actual tasks that the project was going to do, you know. We we worked with nurses, so it might be like training or, or something. And so I made this list of things that I was and then a, a list of things I wanted to become. So I figured I would either affirm something great about me already or call into being something that I hadn't yet done. I don't remember the the things I want to be list, but on the things that I was, one of the things I was was Carol's daughter. I was also Robert's daughter and at the time Hank's secretary and Gordon's girlfriend. <laughs> and didn't want to stay Gordon's girlfriend. And, you know, I wanted that to progress, and it did. Um, and That'd definitely, be a funny name of a company, it Gordon's really girlfriend. Would. Gordon's yeah. girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, but when I said Carol's daughter out loud, uh, you know, just sitting in my living room brainstorming the names, it was like I got that little that little shiver, that little thing. And I picked it. And what I love about that moment was that was the first moment that you get that that little thing. And as entrepreneurs, we know we rely on that moment a lot more times. So that was my first recognition of, wait, I know that feeling. I know what that is. That's a good thing. That's gut. I got to listen to that. Mm. Um, but that's how the name came to be. And then as far as mom, you know, being an, an encouragement to me, she definitely encouraged me to sell because it was a hobby. And she's the one who said, why don't you sell at the church flea market? I never would have thought of that because I was never in retail. It wasn't something that I ever did. Um, and then when the business began to grow, Mom was always the the cheerleader in she didn't let me like if I called her and I said, I don't know what to do. I just I have, I have so many orders and I don't know how I'm going to get this stuff done. And this person called in and I need to get this done. She would tell me to hang up, get a cup of tea, call her back. And then just the time that I went to got to get the tea, right? You calm down, your heart rate goes down, your oh, breathing what a, what is better. A good mom. And then you get on the phone and you're sipping the tea and then you have more rational conversation. So she'd help me figure out how to get it done. And she would always say the hard part would be getting the business. Mm -hmm. Figuring out how to get the work done is the easy part. I don't know how she knew that because yeah. she wasn't a business owner, but that's so true. The hard part is getting the getting the orders, not filling them. Right. Filling them is the easy part. So when mom passed away um, in 2003, I realized that that thing that she was doing for me, I had to learn how to do for myself because I couldn't call her and, you know, hey, help me figure this out. And she was, my dad was the mushy person. My mother wasn't the mushy person. And so in even in grieving her, I had to sort of like balance that. 
because I knew she'd be, hey, hey, what? uh-uh, don't start that. Don't uh-huh. start that. Uh-uh, no, we're not going there, you know? And I would have to, like, catch myself if I was going to fall into those, like, little pockets of missing her and stuff like that because I, kn- I know it would frustrate her. So it having the company name that it was really a whim at the moment, but to live through it and then to live through losing her and to get up every day and look at her name, I am so grateful that that's what it was named. And, th- and then to still carry her legacy through, you know, like for me to sit and talk to you about my mom, mm-hmm. you know, or anybody that asks me that question and I get to talk about how great she was and how strong she was. And yeah, so she she was remarkable to me. And then she lived with an illness. She had an illness called polymyositis. Um, so it affected her muscles. Her muscles would become inflamed. She would get really bad muscle cramps. And she always looked at the glass as half full, never looked at it as, oh, I'm in so much pain. Oh, this shoes up, oh, could be worse. I'm walking, could be worse. Mm-hmm. I got out of bed today, you know. Yeah. Lucky girl. Yeah, yeah really, really, really lucky. Really lucky. So, well, I'm so happy that you came in and Thank I got you. to talk to you. I'm more happy that I call you my friend. Thank and, you. Uh, Me too. And tell everyone out there who's listening where they could see more of you. You can see more of me at uh, I am Lisa Price on Instagram. That's my main uh, social media outlet. But I am on Facebook as Lisa Price. And occasionally I make an appearance on Twitter as I am Lisa Price. Um, carolsdaughter.com is our website and that's where all what's new and tried and true is available. And Carol's daughter has a great YouTube channel. Lisa is going to work on her YouTube channel and Lisa is going to work on her podcast. So ah. maybe, maybe I'll have a guest in ah. one day. <laughs> I'll come to Brooklyn cause my kids are moving there. Oh, so cool. yeah, cool. Yeah. Brooklyn is the, well, Montclair is a new Brooklyn though. This That's, is this is true. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but it's okay. We could very be cool. We could be sister cities, Brooklyn and Montclair. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was my conversation with Lisa Price. I love that her mother was the inspiration for why she started her company and naming it after her mom, an honor that her mom really deserved. And that's it for this episode of Long Story Short. If you like the show, tell a friend. Also, rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions for me, email them to askbobbybrown at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at justbobbybrown and let me know who you'd like me to interview, anything else you want to see. Thanks for listening. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown, a Gallery Media Group production.